and welcome to Young and Sober, the podcast where we discuss what it means to get sober under the age of 30 and stay sober. If you're sober, sober curious, or just curious, you've come to the right place. Any discussion heard here is the experience of the individual and should not be taken as the stance of AA as a whole. Welcome to yet another episode. I'm Alex, and this week Beth and I will be chatting about being autistic in recovery. How are you, Beth? I am groovy, thank you, Alex. Bit tired, but groovy to be here, and yeah, I'm excited. Amazing. Love it. I'm so happy to have you. Um, So just for a bit of context, Beth, how old were you when you got sober, and how long have you been sober? Um, I came in the day before my 21st birthday. Um, I first got sober when I was 21 and um, I had a relapse around two years. So my sobriety date now is the 1st of September 2021 and I am a year and eight months sober. Amazing. I love that. Um, And just so the listeners are aware, um, I have known Beth since her very early days. (laughs) I can't actually believe how long it's been it's amazing I had purple hair yeah you did um her hair is now kind of red right yes and as we will get into as typical autistics I've changed my hair color about five million times and (laughs) I now realize that that is potentially part of my autism um so the reason that I've kind of chosen to do this podcast and especially chosen it to do with Beth Um, is because I have recently been diagnosed autistic literally we're talking like two weeks ago Beth is clapping enthusiastically just for those that can't see (laughs) so I have joined the autistic club Um, and it's been very very interesting for me to look at the traits of autism that I have there are some that I don't have because obviously it's a spectrum Um, and Beth has had her diagnosis uh, quite a while longer than I have. So I just thought it would be really interesting for us to have a conversation um, about what it's like for Beth, what it's like for me, what the process of being diagnosed has been like, um, the kind of stuff it's brought up, because I'm not going to lie, it's brought up a lot of stuff, um, and how we each are managing this with our recovery. And I know for a fact that I'm going to get a lot of stuff from Beth today because I, yeah, 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 that it's it's a bit of a head fuck excuse my language but it is um so Beth when were you diagnosed with autism um I was actually first preliminary um it was brought up to me that I was perhaps autistic when I was in my last year of drinking so I was I'm trying to think I'm more part of my neurodivergence is I'm terrible at dates <laughs> I think I like defy the stereotype of autism already that said I'm terrible at maths <laughs> I am too it's hilarious um <laughs> so I'm in 20 right if you came in when you were 21 yes so yeah. I was in um I'd started a therapy um for a suspected diagnosis of BPD and the therapist turned around after the second session and said I don't think you have BPD and I was like oh she said has it ever been suggested to you that you may be autistic and that was like oh my goodness um I realized later it was a bit like that moment of finding out you're an alcoholic and feeling like the last person to know so yeah. I at the time you know I didn't I was drinking still 
so I didn't process it um so later on it took a lot of time with the NHS um I was formally diagnosed in my um in I was 23 wow so I had that in-between period where it was quite awkward yeah so I've congratulate you Alex as well in the sense that you're talking about this early on in your journey oh man I mean as most of the listeners of this podcast will know and you having known me so long I I process by talking about stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) so for me I've been doing a lot of talking about it generally but just because it's something that I'm now already incredibly passionate about which is spreading awareness because it's taken such a long time for anybody including me to realize that this might be something that I'm you know that I have um I'm just already very passionate about spreading awareness really and understanding I think and I think especially in recovery because there is a very special kind of correlation between traits of alcoholism and traits of autism and for me I think part of the journey that I'm starting to go on is about looking at what are traits of autism that I'm just going to have to live with because that's just part of my autism and what are the traits that are alcoholism like just just unpicking like there's so much crossover and it's it's bringing a lot of stuff up for me in terms of like okay is this something that I can't be expected to not do if that makes sense because of my autism um yeah there's, there's just a whole heap of stuff. So yeah. <laughs> um, what I thought I'd start with, I um, found a really, really amazing image on Instagram, obviously, um, which is the autism iceberg. And I'm sure everybody understands, especially in recovery or mental health, that there is the iceberg, whereas what you present with or what people expect and then all the stuff that's under the surface. And so some of these kind of traits I've just done a bit of reading around and I just wondered if you could kind of we could talk about what it looks like for you whether you feel like you have this trait or you know how you manage it with your recovery so for me a big part of why I sought the diagnosis was because a lot of the things that we will talk about today such as executive dysfunction emotional dysregulation rejection sensitive dysphoria which is a whole new thing that I didn't even know was a thing um stimming difficulty with change like all of that kind of stuff so basically what was promised to me when I came into recovery was if you work the steps if you do all this work those (laughs) those things will go away those things will stop happening or they'll be easier to manage And what I have found over the last six years of recovery is that a lot of those things, I can work the steps as hard as I like, and I can work my program as hard as I like, but those things keep happening and keep coming up in a very, very big, visceral, painful way. Um, And so there's been a lot of stuff along the the way of me being diagnosed with treatment-resistant depression and generalized anxiety disorder and all sorts of other things. But as a result of having done my steps, and done so much therapy it hadn't stopped these things from happening and so that was why upon the recommendation of actually Lottie who was used to be a co-host on this podcast her mum who's a child psychologist um recommend that I that I seek an uh, assessment assessment for autism and 
it's happened. You know, when I did, when I did the assessment, I felt a bit like a fraud because I was like, I'm not autistic. Like I'm just trying to get an easy out. Like this is just me trying to like get, get out of, you know, whatever working my program. But I now recognize that as internalized ableism. Um, anyway, so should we start with maybe executive dysfunction? What does that, what does that look like for you? Executive dysfunction, I think what you just picked, I picked up from what you just said there about like the, like with our heads, we think, oh, we're just using something as like, you know, excuse or something. I think that's a big part of the executive dysfunction for me with the alcoholism um, in terms of the criticalness. But the executive dysfunction for me, um, I have difficulty organizing things. Um, I also have a diagnosis of ADHD which goes into it like they're often comorbid for for me it's that inability to just manage all of that life stuff it's like I kind of think of it as like you know the Tetris game yeah I often like most of the time I feel like the Tetris blocks are all in the wrong way and then they're creeping up and then the music starting and I'm just there like (laughs) and I just want that pause and I found that hard particularly in the program in the sense of I've become a lot more compassionate to myself now but when I'd be told to do suggestions and do this and you know do a routine every day I just could not stick to it so a big thing I've been working on for me is actually it's okay to do a few small things consistently than trying to do it all and yeah yeah oh my gosh a hundred percent so I'll just read the the definition that I found online for executive dysfunction so it is a behavioral symptom that disrupts a person's ability to manage their own thoughts emotions and actions it's most common with certain mental health conditions, including addictions and autism, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, and there, there is, you know, there is an ability that the program teaches us, I believe, to be able to manage those things, especially the extreme emotions. Um, I think one thing that I am wrapping my head around is the fact that not knowing I'm autistic has meant that I have not been able to put in place certain things to prevent meltdowns, which I do have quite frequently. And anyone who knows me will tell you that I I cry all the time, all the time, especially my colleagues will tell you that I cry all the time, <laughs> not in front of the kids, luckily. I always manage to take it out of the classroom, but I cry all the time. Um, and there's certain traits that I'm only just understanding are potentially as a result of my autism which is if say I agree to do something or I I don't know I plan to call somebody later that day if something happens immediately after I've done that and distracts me it's gone like it's not it's not in my head anymore like I will not remember it for love nor money and there are certain things that I've been able to put in place to try and stop that from happening so like I'll set an alarm in the evening if I've promised that I'm going to call somebody um I set an alarm for recording this podcast because I knew that if I didn't have the alarm I wouldn't I wouldn't remember um and that thing has actually been quite painful for me to process because having forgotten things having not called when I said I would call 
having not done something I said I would do has caused a lot of problems in my friendships mm-hmm. um, and has resulted in some, honestly, some friendships ending because in their mind, it's me not being considerate and, you know, you wouldn't forget if you really cared about it or you, you wouldn't forget if you really cared about me or this, that, on the other, that or the other. And what is quite painful about that is like, I am now of the understanding that like, that's my neurodivergence. And that's mm-hmm. something that if I make people aware of it, then maybe they, they might be more understanding. But having, having not been aware of it myself, I'm now like, oh my God, I now understand why that is so difficult for me and why I wasn't able to explain to anybody why I couldn't do those things. Do you know what I mean? Has that, has that affected you in that way at all? Yeah, most definitely. I was just thinking as well when you were saying about one of the lovely things I love about our friendship um, is the fact that, do you remember that time I was coming over to yours on a Sunday? And I was running late because I was on my bike and I got yes. lost. And I was so like, <gasps> and you were like, it's fine, my love. And we had a nice lunch. And, you know, you said, I haven't got much chat in me. Let's watch a film. And I really love that um, in terms of that accommodations and things. Um, I find for me, I've had it recently, especially with people messaging me. I have to start putting lots of boundaries in because even if I have lots of messages stack up, my brain just can't handle that communication even on that level. Um, And I'm learning a lot for me in terms of also with mental health things. Um, Like I have CPTSD as well, which to any like listeners is complex PTSD. And one of the big things that I've noticed is how much that ties into my autism in the sense of that fear of being told off so I often feel if I forget something or I say the wrong thing or I don't try and be this perfect mask that I'll be told off yeah I don't know if you get that Alex oh my gosh I really do I don't necessarily I think I don't necessarily feel like I'm I think about being told off I think for me I'm like they're not going to love me Mm. It's even more, it's even more intense than that. It's, it's literally like, they will reject me. They will not care about me. They will not want to be my friend if I cannot adhere to the expectations of the world and like social rules and all of that kind of stuff. And it's, it's been so mind blowing, but also incredibly validating to recognize that the reason why I can't grasp certain things is, is finally being revealed to me um yeah so there was there was a lot of what you said that I really really connected with and I think it kind of ties into this other phrase I don't know I don't know if you've heard this because I hadn't heard it before um which is rejection sensitive dysphoria um so that's something that's been coming up for me a lot recently because there have been you know friendships that have ended or people that have disappeared or you know growth where we've got like grown away from each other which is quite a natural thing to happen um but because of what I believe is this rejection sensitive dysphoria it's incredibly painful for me and really really hard for me to move on from so the um definition of this is when you experience severe emotional pain and physical pain because of a a failure or feeling rejected and 
honestly, when it when it's happened to me recently, when it's happened to me in the past, it's it physically hurts me. Like I can feel it in my body. Um, and it's like I get into a kind of like a thinking loop. And again, I know this is a trait of addiction. And so this is where I'm kind of trying to what, like find out where is the line and I'm not necessarily suggesting you know where the line is but um just just yeah just rejection in any way shape or form whether that be somebody giving me negative feedback at work or um somebody telling me that something that I've done accidentally has upset them or caused them pain um yeah it's incredibly challenging how how do you find it I, I feel it's actually one of the big reasons why I drank was that fear of rejection because with alcohol it I would not do anything like date anyone go on a date sober I would struggle to put myself forward for any sort of plans or anything in that fear of being rejected like I still haven't had a birthday party I'm still scared of that in the sense of what if people don't come so alcohol for me kind of I can see why I use that to self-medicate that rejection sensitivity and in recovery I feel a big thing for me has been um when I came back in my previous sponsor was big on saying to me like you need to meet up with people you need to get more used to making plans with people and actually I found it really really difficult but that exposure in the sense of if someone changes a plan or cancels, I can kind of manage that emotional wave a bit better. And yeah. today it's, I feel that's where the step three thing really kind of helps me in the sense of, it sounds so, it sounds like such a trivial thing, but yesterday um, Alex can see my groovy, groovy headband I made. I love it. It's got googly eyes on it, just for anyone that's listening. <laughs> yeah. So I was in a shop and I saw it and I saw it had a few like tacky like beads on it. It was damaged. So I was like, ah, I could get that reduced and ask them if they could reduce it for me. The fear I got before I was just going up to the thingy of being like, oh my goodness, I could feel that panic in me. So I had to just take a deep breath and be like, you know, <laughs> say the step three prayer. And you know what? I, they did give it to me reduced but when you were saying about like the process of it what I'm kind of learning with the difference between my alcoholism and my autism is how long the reaction goes on for so yeah. say for example if I was going into a shop and they didn't have the sandwich I wanted and my autism like you know I'd get very upset about that that if I remove that trigger I wouldn't be upset but what I find with alcoholism is if it lasts a few days then it's a resentment yeah and I'm still learning the difference <laughs> yeah I mean I feel like it's a lifetime of learning the difference right? yeah even if if there even is a difference maybe there isn't um, yeah. but yeah when you said when you said I drank on that that I connected with that so much there are so many things that I am reading and listening to I've I've found a few podcasts um about autism as well um and so much of my 
inability or fear of socializing um fear of saying the wrong thing fear of doing the wrong thing I think because I so often do say or do the wrong thing um completely inadvertently like not meaning to it just happens because it's now I recognize who I am um a lot of that fear was why I drank you know I drank because I I feared I wouldn't be accepted I drank because I felt that I I wouldn't be okay just as I am and I think that is a that is a real real common trait across all alcoholics all addicts or I mean I won't say all I'll just say many that I've that I've met and that I know um I think all is too much of a generalization but it's it's the cause of those feelings of discomfort maybe that is different in different people and what I'm learning or understanding is that a lot of those reasons that I felt that way are potentially because I'm autistic um and that's been a very interesting journey I think you hear a lot of the time in the rooms um people say like I was born an alcoholic or um I was born with fear in fear and and all of that kind of stuff and I I feel like I was definitely born an autistic <laughs> and um my way of medicating which is the phrase that you used was was with alcohol you know and you know I remember hearing in my early days and I don't know whether you had this experience where people kept saying when I put down the drink my anxiety and depression lifted um and for me when I put down the drink my anxiety and depression got a hell of a lot worse <laughs> like a lot worse and like the, I mean I I hadn't had any suicidal thinking I mean no I had had suicidal thinking but I didn't have a plan while I was drinking and four months into being sober I wanted to kill myself like mm -hmm. I was ready to kill myself and I think that's because what I'm recognizing now as a lot of unresolved traits and things that I just did not understand were coming up and it's potentially or definitely in my mind because I'd been medicating all of these issues with alcohol I've been self-medicating and when once my medicine was gone what was left was somebody who was neurodivergent and did not know how to manage the world without alcohol was that your experience as well <laughs> absolutely yeah um I think for me it's been goodness if I remember when I came in my anxiety was off the scale and I I'm still learning now that I don't know if you've ever um, been called it a lot, that sort of thing of being too emotional. Yeah. And like, I've, I find that very difficult in the sense of I'd be trying to do all these suggestions, things, and I just could not calm down. Um, so I found it really helpful actually um, learning all these different strategies. Like for me, it's things like going for a run if I'm angry or if I can't verbalize how I'm feeling that's okay if that makes sense yeah. just finding different methods like earlier today I um I don't know what I was feeling but I was just feeling a bit not okay and so I went and my favorite thing to do and it's one of my sensory things. We're not on stimming yet, but is I love going on swings. So I just go to the park 
and I'm just on my swing listening to my music and I feel so much better and you know (laughs) I'm 25 and I don't care because that's what makes me happy like I feel a lot with my drinking I'd be having to force myself into these situations I really the fear of missing out and I really just I even then I stuck out like a sore thumb like but even in recovery then I would have that thing of I'd be trying to put myself you know into these social situations and I would just leave feeling terrible mm-hmm. um and I feel that's like the real big step isn't it of like we can do anything in recovery and realizing that you know it's okay if what my recovery and what I find fun and what is happiness and joy for me looks different to someone else yeah um yeah yeah I think I've gone on a bit of a ramble but no no I was with you every step of the way and I loved it and the the thing that's been so interesting thinking about stimming is um for anyone that doesn't know what that is it's it can be a verbal stim which is like making a noise or like a sound with your mouth I know somebody who clicks um it can be a movement with your hands like very like stereotypical images of people with autism are like rocking or like hand flapping um and it's something that brings the individual comfort so it's something that helps reduce the anxiety or helps reduce the fear or whatever um and it's been so interesting because I think it's been so ingrained in me that stimming is not okay that there are things that I find comforting, but I don't do them because I feel like they're not acceptable, even when I'm by myself. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, I find rocking so comforting, so comforting. I'm not gonna lie to you, I can't go on a swing because I get sick. (laughs) It makes me feel nauseous. It's the same with like those roundabouts. Like, I just can't, I can't do it. Um, But rocking on my own and then um, humming, which again, I, had no idea that that was a thing so I was in kind of like the modeling world for a little bit when I was a teenager and something that all the photographers used to say to me is like why are you humming like why you're not even like what are you humming why are you humming and I'm thinking about that now and being like I was humming because I was deeply uncomfortable and it was something that comforted me like that's that's why I did it um And so I'm now at home, I'm not quite at the point of allowing myself to do it in public yet, but I'm now at the point where when I'm feeling uncomfortable, I hum or I just have a little rock and I feel better. Um, But it's been, yeah, it's just been really eye-opening to kind of open my mind to the possibility of allowing myself to stim and allowing myself to, yeah, do things that make me feel more comfortable. And the other thing that I really love is like having pressure on me um and when I did my autism assessment I was like oh yeah you know like I love my weighted blanket and she was like I was literally just about to suggest you get a weighted blanket (laughs) um and I love it and then every now and again like if I'm really distressed or like having a big meltdown my boyfriend will just wrap his arms around me and squeeze really tightly um and it calms me down it's just yeah how do you feel about the pressure thing I love a good hug I love a hug when it's deep pressure yeah um and what you were saying is because like I think the thing about being autistic is the process is it's almost a bit like when you nearly get sober there's that grieving of oh my god what was my life and what my life could have been 
and a bit like you know you can't imagine oh my god going to a wedding and not having a drink how will I live another day without having a drink with um stimming I remember being in that position where I was like I didn't even know how much I stimmed and it is a process like now I did a performance recently where I flap my hands and do a stimlesque in front of general public and when I'm everywhere I I dance all the time because it calms me down Mm -hmm. um that has been a long process and I think what has helped me is what I love about this program is this thing of like you know the the like relief from the bondage of self yeah I feel that is so prevalent with um accepting ourselves as autistic in the sense of it doesn't matter how other people perceive me um and yeah I want to share my favorite stim at the moment (laughs) which it's like it brings other people joy so mine is I'm obsessed with the b52s at the moment amazing love that and there's the song you know the rock lobster song yes there's the bit when they make the animal noises yeah and I like to do the animal noises because it calms me down okay do them for us go for it okay so here comes a stingray here comes a manta ray into a jellyfish I can't remember the rest oh here comes a sea robin watch out for that piranha yeah that was totally like <laughs> if I, I had love it on, if I had the music on it would be better but that sequence calms me down because it's verbally yeah stimming yeah I love that I really love that I used to as a teenager when I was drunk actually funnily enough do you know the r2d2 squeal when he gets like when he gets shot up in the air and he does this really big squeal I'm not going to do it now because it's really loud um but that I remember that finding that comforting and especially when I was like really deeply uncomfortable in social situations Mm. I would just do it and at the time I thought it was hilarious because I was drunk but I now realize that I was it was something that made me feel safe first of all because I love R2D2 I'm obsessed with him I have him tattooed on my arm like but second of all just that I guess just the freedom of making that noise and having it really, like you said, freedom from the bondage of self. Like it was completely letting go, not caring about what I looked like, not caring that people were going to be like annoyed at me making this ridiculous noise. Like I just, I just did it. And it also made me think about a sober rave that I went to in my first year of recovery. Um, And it's really interesting because I love to dance as well, but I still in, my six years into recovery really find it difficult to dance in public without a social lubricant like I find it really difficult I think the fear of rejection the fear of judgment is still Mm. really really prevalent in my head um but at this particular sober rave it was amazing and it wasn't even necessarily my kind of music like I love kind of soul and funk and Motown and all that kind of stuff and it was very much like techno and like house and dance and like all of that kind of stuff but there was a point in the night where I was with two of my best friends in recovery. And for a short period of time, I really let go. And I almost felt like I was meditating. Like it was that transformative. Like I just felt like so free. Um, And that I now recognize as 
the feeling that I feel when I allow myself to sin. I mm. feel free. I feel relieved. I feel safe. I feel comfortable. Um, yeah, so that's definitely something I'm kind of opening myself up to more, I would say. Um, yeah, so another trait that I was interested in, because it's something I really, really struggle with, is sleep disruption. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I would be really interested to know because I I mean I've struggled with sleep disruption my whole life my whole entire life and my problem is never falling asleep which is why a lot of doctors have tried to prescribe me sleep medication but it doesn't work because yes it may make me drowsy but it doesn't stop me from waking up multiple times in the middle of the night and that's mm. my problem is that I fall asleep quite comfortably but I do not stay asleep and I wake up over and over and over and over again. Um, and again, now with the reading that I've been doing, I'm learning that that is quite a common autistic trait. What does sleep disruption look like for you? Well, um, I'm currently having sleep disruption. Um, I have a similar issue that I can fall asleep now, but I wake up at the same time most nights. Yeah. Um, Mine is also also complicated a bit from the CPTSD, so I have a lot of intrusive dreams and nightmares. But I've always remembered having issues with sleeping, and I used alcohol to knock that out me out. Like I didn't, I could never remember falling asleep. I would just have that instant unconsciousness, and then sort of thing. Um, yeah. I feel that's an ongoing one, to be honest. Definitely. I'm I'm still battling to find the solution for mine. It's it's a challenge. And I mean, I don't like the idea of taking medication to sleep because I feel like I would need to take it every day. Um, so that's something that's yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. I mean, it's it's just it's really mind-blowing to me how many of these traits recovery really does give us the tools to help and even though it doesn't make them go away completely especially with things like perfectionism and kind of the social anxiety and all of that kind of stuff difficulty forming friendships I think that one of the most beautiful realizations that I've had is the reason why recovery friendships are so incredible for me is because it's the first time in my life that people have spoke to me the way that I speak which is like no bullshit what you see is what you get like if there's a problem I mean this is not everyone in recovery but you know if there's a problem they talk about it and then you can resolve the issue or not but at least it's it's out there one of the things that I really really struggled with socially my whole life is not being able to read between the lines and you know if someone's annoyed with me but they haven't told me why they're annoyed I I literally it just doesn't make sense to me like I can't I cannot wrap my head around it um, so it just, it's been making me think a lot about our friendship. It's been making me think a lot about my friendship with a couple of other women that I know in recovery that are also autistic and why those friendships are so powerful. And it's because we are on the same level. We are by, by nature oversharers. We're by nature people that share about difficult stuff very easily and without that much emotion. And yeah, it's just been really fascinating to me. What about you? I think, yeah, absolutely. I think what always struck me with the way the rooms works is I find particularly like autistic 
way that I make friendships is I can't do the small talk or the light chat. I want straight into the deep thing. I want to know you're like, you know, like your interests and that deep emotional connection with people whilst I feel the sort of neurotypical communication, particularly outside of like the rooms is very much that social chit chat first and then you get to know people. Yeah. So I feel the, the friendships I've made in recovery, particularly as you've met these people sharing usually very deep stuff, it's almost like, like you skip that layer. Yeah. And the friendships I've made, particularly with you and other people, there isn't that pressure. And I feel that's so important. Um, and I I don't know, it's just, they're really beautiful things. And I've kind of learned, because I used to get very upset um, because of that rejection sensitivity, because I used to see, even in like recovery, some people would have massive circles of friends and things. And, you know, would be able to go to all these events and everything. And I'd be like, oh, but I, my recovery doesn't look like that. Yeah what I've learned is so beautiful is by actually being honest about being autistic because I wasn't when I came in um I've had actually people come up to me now and say oh I'm going through this process or found out themselves that they're autistic and it's that thing of like being actually accepted for who I am and not feeling like I have to perform yeah and that like coming away and not feeling anxious when I'm around people and I feel that's something that I'm learning to do more and more is trust my gut yes and that you know because I don't know how you found this particularly in recovery there is a lot of emphasis on social communication like you need to call someone every day yeah. and you know talk to someone and everything and for me I found that really really overwhelming yeah um so what I love at the moment is like particularly I find I can text my sponsor or something or if I need to make a con communication with someone but I don't really know what to say um I can just send a meme or a picture of a dog or something and that's still connection yeah yeah I love that I really really love that and I I really really connected with what you said I feel like everything you say I'm like I really connected with what you said but I really connected with what you said about pressure to be social like I I still to this day I mean I, I'm hoping that this is something that I'm going to become more gentle with myself on for want of a better phrase um I I still put so much pressure on myself to do socializing the way I see other people do socializing mm -hmm. and because my oldest group of friends are still drinking still out there they're not they're not alcoholics for as far as I know um yeah still drinking still partying still you know having massive house parties that's kind of their big thing is house parties um and the longer I have in recovery the more I realize that I find those things really really difficult and really overwhelming and honestly a lot of the time I, I'll go and then I'll come home and I'll just cry um because I just find it so challenging and I have a lot of other friends in recovery neurotypical friends in recovery who have like a 
huge social life and are always doing this, that and the other. Like my friend Mel, who I love to bits, is the most social person I know and she's sober. And she is always like either at a party or, you know, an event or seeing this person for this and then seeing this person for this and then doing this and then, and I can't live my life like that. And a lot of my recovery has been looking at people like like that and being like, what's wrong with me? Mm. Why can't I do those things? Like, come on, suck it up, like get on with it. You just have to do it because they do it. And what literally I've been thinking in the last two weeks is, oh my gosh, finally, I don't have to be so hard on myself. Like, finally, I understand why those things are so difficult and why they can be so painful for me and why I find group things so hard, not just because I'm socially uncomfortable, but because I find, like, multiple conversations at the same time. I cannot, I can't do it. Like, I just can't process it at all. And I just end up going into my head and then missing everything that's been said. Um, so, yeah, that that thing about yeah just being kinder to yourself and being like it's okay that this is not something that you like it's okay that this is not something that makes you feel safe it's it's yeah and I mean I think I'm at the start of quite a long quite a long journey of yeah recognizing those traits in myself and and accepting them for what they are and it's it's very interesting that I've um yeah that this this has come about i've i've been going to an autism in aa meeting um which is on zoom every day at 4 p.m um and i will put the link actually in the show notes so that anyone who list, who's listening can go if they want to um it's an open meeting so even if you're not diagnosed autistic or if you're self-diagnosed or whatever you're you're still welcome welcome they accept everyone and anyone which is wonderful um and i have ask somebody who's autistic to take me through the steps again um she is amazing she's american she lives in new york and she's 36 years sober um but she was only diagnosed with autism two years ago so it's it's been a really incredible relationship that's begun to build because she's kind of been talking to me as i've going through been going through the process of being assessed and then after the assessment i asked her if she would go through the steps with me and she said yes um, and so a lot of what we've been looking at, we're, we're on step one, is I'm not only powerless over my alcoholism, I'm also powerless over my autism. Mm. Um, and something that she talks about a lot, which again, I just want to emphasize that the discussions that we have here are the experience of the individual, they don't speak for AA as a whole, um, is that a lot of the work that she did with the steps before she was diagnosed with autistic felt quite punitive um and that kind of stuff of like you are self-obsessed you are this you are that mm. when actually for autistic people it's not necessarily helpful to phrase it that way because we are in in by virtue of our neurodivergence there are certain traits that we just have it's not because we're not working hard enough it's not because we're not doing the steps it's not because we're not working our program it's because we're autistic um and so I'm really, really looking forward to going through the steps with her with that kind of lens. Um, and I think it'll be really interesting. And I'm, I'm just wondering for you whether having the diagnosis has helped you in recovery to be, to be gentler on yourself. Absolutely. I think for me, when I could finally actually accept it and be honest about it, because I had a lot of shame around it. 
And it was that fear of um, being rejected or being invalidated sort of thingy. And now I find the more I speak about it and the more I get to know myself, because it's a bit like you come home to yourself sort of thing. And I wouldn't change in the same way I wouldn't change being an alcoholic because I wouldn't have had meet meet all of the people and have my recovery and my spirituality today. I wouldn't change being autistic because whilst I don't see it as a superpower or anything, I find actually it makes my recovery so much more rich and fun and vibrant and groovy. And groovy is actually one of my autistic traits that has kind of just caught on and become my mantra because I tend to repeat words when I don't know what to do in a situation. So mine is just groovy, but that's off topic. But it was this thing of finding all these different strategies that work for me. So mine is I like to go cake bushing. So I take myself off into the, the Richmond Park and I dance like Kate Bush and that connects me to my higher power. Or, you know, those little things of writing, I'm proud of myself lists or stimming. Um, and the way that I find the steps, I found I took them very literally. So understanding those abstract concepts like a will, I still don't really understand that. Yeah. And that's okay. But the difficulties I've had, and especially in terms of like autism and mental health and recovery, that in a way has provided me with where I want to actually gain a career which is using my experiences and you know my recovery hasn't been smooth in that way to help other people because I feel it has made me so much more resourceful yeah. and unique and today I can be proud of myself and love the things that I would find a bit cringy about I think I worry people find me cringy but now I just don't care. And it's just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as well, like, it was a real sort of um, higher power moment for me because um, I was still really struggling when I came back in last year with this whole thing of um, being neurodivergent in meetings, especially with the kind of pressures of, like, you know, being around lots of people, and feeling can I talk about this um but now I'm a secretary with another neurodivergent fellow um in a meeting can I say where it is yeah of course you can so it's the AADHD and neurodivergency meeting and it's lunchtime on Wednesday in Wimbledon Chase and the atmosphere in that meeting is just so beautiful it's just because you did a chair for me there it's just like so much relaxed and just that laughter because they say about the rooms there's that like AA laughter and stuff and I just I just feel so safe in those rooms and it helps me with that perfectionism in the sense of it doesn't matter if I like forget what the script says or anything and it really gives me so much joy as well Alex to see you in this part of your journey and that you're talking about this stuff now and being honest and curious in your like it's just amazing oh thank you I appreciate that so much and I just like you were the first person that I messaged when I got the, the diagnosis and was just like I'm autistic <laughs> <laughs> 
um oh wow this has been so powerful and I mean I think the last thing that I'd like us to cover because we do need to wrap up soon is how your step three your step two and your step three helps you with the combination of of autism and alcoholism how how does that I mean you talked about spending time with your higher power Kate Bushing um are there any other ways that it kind of that it helps you and what kind of higher power practices do you have that that help you yeah I think step two and step three for me are so powerful um because it's almost like with the serenity prayer one of the things I have to accept that I cannot change is that I don't like change um and it gives me that compassion with myself and I know for me the big thing I struggle with as an alcoholic and as an autistic is fear of tomorrow and that needing to have a plan and big life things and even the small ones just give me that constant fear of anxiety mm -hmm. and you know people people are valuable things change you know things go wrong so having a dependence on a higher power whatever that looks like for me it looks like everything different thing every day one minute it's like you know the b52s next minute it's the sun that learning to get that faith and trust in something that isn't going to change is always going to be there for me is so important yeah so yeah how is it for you very similar I mean I I have a pretty solid connection to a specific faith um but again as I've shared many times in in this on this podcast I love the the fact that recovery tells us that our higher power can be anything yeah um, and even though my higher power is connected to a faith it's not a faith that makes well my personal faith does not mean that I look at someone else's higher power and say your higher power is wrong and I feel like that's a fear that a lot of people have around organized religion is that they'll say mine is wrong if you don't it mine is right if you don't believe it yours is wrong kind of thing and that's that's not a part of my faith at all but um my yeah my relationship with my higher power has shifted slightly I um used to go to church every Sunday kind of from about I think I'd say my third year in recovery um I now watch church online because I find going to a church and having it be super crowded really challenging and upsetting and difficult um prayer is is huge is absolutely huge for me especially if I'm feeling really overwhelmed um I will lie on my kitchen floor and blast out worship music because actually the tone for me and the um even just the melodies in in worship music are almost catered towards being soothing and calming yes. so they really really are for me um so I do that when I shower in the morning I have worship music playing while I'm in the shower um and yeah I think exactly what you said about having something that is not going anywhere something that's not changing something that completely and utterly loves me and accepts me as I am um has been crucial in my recovery and I think is even more crucial now that I have this diagnosis because there is still a fear that the results of my autistic traits will mean that I won't be loved or will mean that I will be rejected or that I won't be liked or accepted and to have a concept of something greater than myself that loves me accepts me and is not going anywhere is is really 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 powerful um and really helpful and then I think 
the other thing that I would say that I, again, I'm only recognizing as a result of this diagnosis and something that I'm going to go into a bit more with a therapist, I think, is taking stuff literally because in my faith, um, there is a lot of stuff that if you take it literally, it doesn't actually align with my values. Mm. Um, and so for me, it's it's been looking at that and saying, okay, it's it's okay that I don't agree with this particular bit. It's okay that, you know, I don't believe that homosexuality is wrong. It's okay that I don't worry about having sex before marriage, you know, like things like that, that I found really difficult and was like, how can I have this faith, but not do not believe these things and da, 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 da. so that's been a whole interesting, interesting kind of journey for me and one that I'm still on. Um, but yeah, it's super powerful, higher power. And it's, it's honestly just getting me through like the last two weeks have been really hard. I felt incredibly relieved when I first got the diagnosis and then the week after I was just crying every day because I was just like what my life is not what I thought it was like I am not who I thought I was like this it's just like and thinking about poor little Alex and how like alone she felt and if someone had just noticed all those years ago that I was autistic that how differently my life would look but then my higher power has meant that I have only found this out now for a reason yeah and my higher power has been the comfort that has shown me that I'm yeah I'm finding out I'm autistic now because I was meant to find out I was autistic now like exactly. all the stuff that happened all the alcoholism and you know exactly the same thing that you said I'm grateful for it because it brought me here and it brought me to people like you and um it brought me to this wonderful relationship that I'm now in with somebody who is turns out is also neurodivergent <laughs> and is wonderful and supportive and understanding and you know I can say things to him like I don't want to be touched but I still want you to be in the room can you just sit there and not say anything and not touch me and he's okay with that like it's just it's it's beautiful and you know without my higher power I genuinely believe none of this stuff would have happened so and I think it's groovy as well in the sense that for me with the higher power stuff I was always told that a higher power will communicate its way to you because it's your personal relationship so for me I find one of the things of being very sensory sensitive as an autistic person it means that I feel things very strongly in my body with my higher power and visually and when you're saying about like you know feeling grieving being an autistic child and not knowing a thing that has really helped me as a suggestion is actually going back to those interests I had as a child so I go on dog walks and I know every breed of dog and you know listening to ABBA or going into those childhood interests has really helped me heal yeah what was your childhood interest Funnily enough, so when I went back to study teaching at the tender age of 28 after getting sober, I said to my mum, who would have thought at 28 I'd be studying to be a teacher? And she was like, Alex, when you were five years old, you told me you wanted to be a teacher. So <laughs> Five-year-old Alex wanted to do the job that I'm doing right now, which is wonderful. And for me, I'm a nursery teacher. So I am basically a child every day. I get to hang out with three and four-year-olds and feel the joy that they feel and the sadness that they feel and the you know I think for me that's been such a huge part of my journey and part of my recovery has been 
recognizing that the reason why I wanted to work with these tiny people is because I wanted to give them what I was never given. Yeah. And it's been so beautiful to teach my kids to name what they feel and to be able to sit with big feelings and to know that it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be frustrated, but there are choices that we can make that mean that we feel those feelings safely. And it's, it's beautiful. I have one little boy, Finn, who says, I'm feeling really grumpy. I'm going to go and sit in the book corner in the chair. And Oscar, who says, I'm feeling really sad. Please, can you give me a hug now? And like, Linus is barking. Um, and I think, in a way, my, my response to them is my, my response to little Alex and is kind of giving her what she would have needed by giving them what they need. And yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. And then lastly, just like drawing and painting. I was told by a teacher when I was in year 10 that I wasn't good enough to do art GCSE. Um, and since then I've become a calligrapher. I sell my calligraphy. Like I do drawings just for fun for myself. And that's been a real game changer for me because it's so soothing um yeah oh I wish we could talk about this forever but we are gonna have to wrap up because otherwise people are gonna just stop listening <laughs> so on that note Beth what is something that you're grateful for today I am grateful for swings and sobriety can I have two yeah of course you can yeah. <laughs> you like I am grateful for my autism and for conversations like this with people that I love that are just eye-opening and heart-opening and soul-filling and all of the above so thank you Beth and listeners so much for joining us we'll be back soon with another episode please do like and subscribe if you have any questions or feedback about what you've heard please get in contact with us we'd love to hear from you send us a message on instagram at young and sober podcast or email us at youngandsober at outlook.com. That is it from us. We are young and sober.